Good morning, everyone. I attend the Elanon Serenity Group in Cody, Wyoming, and my name is Lee. <laughs> in case you're ever in the area, I want you to look us up. Sometimes I think we can be so anonymous that we don't know who each other is. And I don't want you to ever have that excuse if you need an Elanon coming through Cody. So my na last name is Sears. No relation to Sears and Roebuck. <laughs> Someone asked me that the other day. Last night, someone asked me that. I said, well, would we be this poor if we were related to Sears <laughs> I admire the courage of some of you who have heard me every week this month. And <laughs> you're still sitting there. Where's Paul Nash? He said he was going to leave. <laughs> Don't you dare leave. <laughs> This group makes me feel comfortable, and I love you. And I want you to know that up front. And I have no idea what I'm going to say to you today. I know that God wanted me here because he called me. And Rich will say, well, gee, nobody's ever called me God before. <laughs> but uh, I had been praying, and I said, God, you're just not using me. Now what is the deal here? I want you to use me. I don't care how you use me. Just use me. And he didn't say anything that day, but three days later I got a phone call and it was Rich and he said, Lee, we'd like you to speak at our spiritual meeting. Will you do it? And I said, oh, sure. And um, so I wanted to confirm it in my mind to see if it was right or not. And so I went to the scriptures and I was... I opened up the book, as I often do when I want a word of confirmation, and I was to read this. And we know that no things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And so I took that as an affirmative, that I was to come here. Now I have no idea what I would have done if when I opened up the good book, I would have read something like, Thou should sitteth down. <laughs> I have no idea what I would have done. I may have called Rich and I may not have. I don't know. <laughs> this is Sunday morning, and so it's legal to talk about God on Sunday mornings. And you're going to hear a little bit about God. And I've never shared my spiritual story with too many people. You've heard some of the funny parts of my spiritual story about the motorcycle incident that I tell about once in a while with John. And I will tell that again, so, you know, plug your ears if you don't want to hear it. It's meaningful to me. <laughs> but you're going to hear some more things about that, and I'm not going to apologize. Because I'm here by the grace of God in Alcoholics Anonymous this morning. And you'll probably say, well, why is she here by the grace of God in Alcoholics Anonymous? She belongs to Elanon. Well, if my husband hadn't gotten into Alcoholics Anonymous there wouldn't have been any need for me to realize how sick I was and get into Al-Anon. So I'm here by those, for those two reasons. I want to tell you a story to start out with. It seems there was this man, he was making a tour of heaven, and St. Peter was guiding him around, and, and he said, now this room over here, this is where all the Methodists are. And I know you guys have heard this story, but bear with me. And he, said, and he said, in this room over here, this is where all the Catholics are. And then there was another really big room. He says, shh, we want you to tiptoe by this room when you go by. 
he says, these are the AAs and al and they think they're the only ones up here. <laughs> and there was another man that was waiting to get into heaven. He was a minister. He was sitting on the bench there because St. Peter told him to sit on this bench. And he was patiently waiting for the pearly gates to open and all of a sudden he saw this one old drunk go staggering by and St. Peter says, come on in, come on in, Sam, we've been waiting for you. And he goes on in. The preacher looks and all of a sudden he sees a little old Alanon lady and she was smiling and jumping around and bubbling and, and St. Peter says, go on in, we've been waiting for you, Alice. And she gets to go on and the minister says, well, what gives here? I don't get it. He says, I've been a man of the cloth all these many years and you haven't let me in yet. And he says, you just be patient. You have to wait a little longer. You just sit on that bench. All of a sudden there was a young 16-year-old girl. And she comes up and he says, oh, Mary, we've been waiting for you. And she gets to go in. And the minister couldn't stand it any longer. He goes up and taps St. Peter on the shoulder and he says, now I don't get it. He says, I've served you these many years, 40 years to be exact, and you're letting this little 16-year-old girl in. And St. Peter says, well, if, it, if it's in of, of any interest to you, I will tell you. When she became 16, her daddy bought her a red sports car. And in those three months that she's been driving that red sports car, she's scared the more hell out of people than you did in all these 40 years. <laughs> So I am not here to, tell, to scare hell out of you this morning. That's not my intention. I just wanted to loosen you up a little. <laughs> I'll start by telling you that I was, a, I was born a farm girl in North Dakota. And um, we, were, we were not rich farmers. And in years gone by, I guess there were rich farmers. We weren't rich farmers when there were. I was born in a one-bedroom house. And until I was 10 or 11 years old, five of us children, five of us children, lived in that one-bedroom house. I have blocked much of that out of my mind. And I don't know why. I guess there was a lot of pain then. My mom and dad were known to fight every day that I can remember. And I always vowed that when I grew up, I would not have a marriage like theirs. I can remember some of the fights. Um, one of the ugliest, and I don't even know why I'm telling you this, but it came to mind last night as I heard Shirley talking. And one of the ugliest fights was I remember my dad threatening to cut my mother's fingers off and shove them down her throat to shut her up. She was always arguing back. She never knew when to keep her mouth shut, and, and that's why the fights ensued. And as they were fighting, us children that were there hearing this would cry. And I don't know why we cried, I guess fear, and we were probably afraid of being abandoned, I don't know. Um, I suspect that mother's life wasn't easy because she had poor circumstances to raise these children in. And I know that her way of disciplining us and keeping us quiet was heavy on the rod and heavy on the arguing, heavy on um, resounding us, always telling us when we did wrong, ne never when we did right, but always when we did wrong. 
So you see, I was qualified for Al-Anon years before I got there. I acquired my sickness at my mother's knee. I'm certain of that today. So I can't blame my alcoholic. I can't use him for a scapegoat. I was sick long before I got here. As I said, I wanted a perfect marriage when I married and was old enough to marry. And, and because I came from a family with six children, she had another one later on, I loved them even though I was the oldest and the caretaker. And by the way, they say the oldest child, you know, they make all the mistakes on that if everybody could just take the oldest child and throw that one away and start over again. And I know there's a few oldest childs in here and I know some of the feelings that they have about that, being caretaker, etc., etc. Anyway, I was the oldest child and I did love children in spite of that. And I w if I could have had one at 16, I would have had one. If I wouldn't have been beaten for it, I would have, and that would have been a way to get away from my mother if I could have found somebody to marry me. Anything to get away from her. So I did marry and I found out that I had married someone exactly like her. What a wonderful thing to find out, huh? <laughs> and he set about trying to change me and he'd say you know if you just do this this way and if you get my mom's recipe for that and if you dress this way and if you talk this way maybe I'd be happy and I tried all those things because I had early on learned to be a people pleaser if I was pleasing my mom I wasn't getting beaten and it wasn't a short time after I was pleasing this, trying to please this man. He said, you know, you're just not the girl I married. Little wonder. He had tried to change me into something and, and then realized he didn't like the results of what I had become. So I would caution you, if any of you are into that, you might knock it off. You might end up with something worse than you started out with. That marriage was to last 13 years prior to it ending, I found myself in the kitchen for the final year of it crying every single day. I found my children, which were then seven and nine, coming up and trying to comfort me because I would be crying at the kitchen sink and they'd say, it's okay, mom, it's okay, it'll be okay, mom. They didn't know why I was crying. They just knew I was so desperately unhappy. And I had gone to marriage counselors. I had gone to everybody I could go to to try and keep this together and try and keep my sanity together. And I, I was to hear many stories out of my husband's mouth. He would go out and find a woman, another woman, and he would do whatever he wanted to to her and he would come home and tell me what he had done. And I guess I, I just learned last week that I, I, I was relating this to someone else I was sharing with because they were telling me a similar situation. I always tell back something similar in my life so they can feel they can identify. And I told them this and, they, and I said, you know, it was just like he was sitting in front of me telling me a story. That this was just something he had read out of a book, that this really didn't happen. And she said, oh my, you learned to detach years before you got into Elanon. And I didn't realize, I did. I learned to detach. I had to realize in my mind that this is just a story. Because if I looked at the ugly truth of it, I couldn't handle it. I would have gone crazy. I could not handle that rejection. I didn't, I didn't grow up with self-worth. I didn't grow up with any self-esteem. Every day of my life that I can recall in my childhood, my mother would say, you know, I didn't want you. I wanted a boy. 
And I didn't think I personalized that, but some days it's really raw. And I guess I did. Um, and then this rejection from my husband, I couldn't handle it. It just seemed insane. And I felt like I was standing on the edge of a cliff and I was, my mind was screaming and it would echo, 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 echo. And I thought, oh my God, if I ever let this scream come out of my throat, they're going to haul me away and they're going to lock me up in an institution and I will never get out because I knew that if I didn't hang on to the last measure of sanity I had that I would go insane. And so I never let the sound come out of my throat. I just stifled it inside and let the screams die inside. And I was to divorce him after 13 years when I could no longer, he had done one last indiscretion and I could no longer handle it and I went and filed for divorce and I did right. I did right. My plan had been, when it got unbearable, my plan had been I would wait until the children were raised and then I would leave. But I couldn't wait that long. I knew that if I went insane that the children would have no one to raise them or at, be at the very worst they would have him and they might end up like I felt like I was ending up. And I had been in a faith at that time that was very dear to my heart and when I divorced I was excommunicated from this faith and then I didn't know where to go. And so I dealt with it as best I could. I put God on the shelf. What else would you do? And I would pull him down in emergencies and use him in emergencies only, but I didn't have him on a daily basis because I didn't, felt I didn't feel worthy. I mean, after all, look what I had done. I had divorced this man. Um, today, you know, I laugh at that, but then it wasn't funny. I was to support my children and myself for a year and a half with uh, three jobs that I had gotten. And uh, after the divorce was final, I finally got $150 from him to help. That was the child support in those days. And it did help. And I was to always seek a better job and I was to go into, um, I was to answer an ad in the newspaper that said interior decorator will train. And I always had a flair for that, loved it. And I thought, well, I think I'm, I'm sure I can handle this. And I went to interview and John opened the door and I thought, oh my God, where has this individual been all my life? I just, I lost it. <laughs> I had never seen anyone look so good to me. And he took me into his office and interviewed. And he introduced me to his wife. And I thought, oh, well, never mind. <laughs> forget that. And I did. I did forget it. Uh, however, six weeks after I was there, he told me he was going to marry me. I thought, this is rather interesting. How is he going to work this out? <laughs> And in the meantime, I had been engaged to somebody and uh, he wasn't free. He said he wasn't happy, but he wasn't free. And I, I held him off sometimes. Sometimes I didn't. And I hate to tell you that part of my story because it doesn't make me look good. But I have to tell you that I 
after I was out of the church, I lived a very worldly life. I thought, well, you know, I'm going to hell anyway, going to hell in a handbasket. I don't have a chance. Look what I've done. Anyway, the man I was engaged to, we had our furniture picked out, the house was picked out, the furniture was in the house, the wedding date was set, we had had a fight, and for reasons, and he had been drinking a lot, he, had, he was a drinker, he had been drinking a lot that particular night, for some reason or other I had called off the wedding and he wanted to talk one more time and I went down to his house and he beat me up bad, beat me up bad. And I had marks on my body that were the size of grapefruit in black and blue marks, and that was the end. I remember going to the phone, and I was going to call the shop to see if anybody was down there that they could come and get me. And John answered the phone, and just about that, I just said, John, help! And I was just desperate. And um, the guy I was engaged to rip the phone off the hook and that was the end of that conversation. John went up to where I lived and my apartment and he, um, I wasn't there. He didn't know where to find me. And he went back down the street and he saw an officer and he said, come with me. He says, there's trouble. And he took me back, he took the officer back to my apartment and he said, she'll be along, I know she'll be along. And he was, I was. I went along and uh, came along and the officer said, what happened? And I told him and he says, I encourage you to press charges. He says, so many women don't do this. And this happens again and again and again. No one calls their bluff. So I pressed charges and went to court and... Um, I should have just walked out when I went in. Here sat the judge that this man I was engaged to sold the car to. <laughs> Real nice, huh? Gave him a good deal too, I'm sure. And the judge threw it out of court because there wasn't a witness. Those things happen. Those things happen. We were living in Longmont, Colorado at that time. Um, John and I got married. Uh, a year after I met him, he became un unentangled. I be, I was free. I was working for him. Uh, we got married at the end of that year, and I have to tell you, even in the last stages of his alcoholism, that these past twelve years have been the best years of my life. They have been the best years of my life. So that can give you a rule of thumb as to where I came from. I, I cannot say that my past life gave you anything to want to, to uh, liken yourself onto. It was miserable. I didn't find any problem with John's drinking. I joined him drinking. We had fun going out to dances. He still courted me after I was married to him. And we'd go out on dances on Saturday night and... Uh, We'd have cocktails when he came home off the rigs, and it was nice. And he, it didn't cause any problem in our families, except twice with my children. Each child had, had two separate occasions where it was a little bit nasty. He, he's, he's made his amends to them, and they hold no, they bear no grudges against him. 
they have deep respect for him. They always say when they talk to me, tell Dad I love him, tell John I love him. So that part is taken care of. I was to find him hitting his bottom, and I don't choose to tell his story. I don't like that. I don't like Elanons to tell their husband's stories. But I will mention the part regarding him where it has touched my life. And I was to find myself coming home at the end of two years of marriage to John to celebrate our anniversary by having a silver tray there, a long-stemmed red rose, and a watch that I had needed. And he told me he had had a lot to drink that day and all. I didn't put much stock in that because he wasn't staggering and his lips weren't slurring words. And I thanked him for the gifts and he was to say to me five minutes later, I don't understand you, Lee. What an ingrate. You haven't thanked me for those gifts. So I thanked him again. And five minutes later, the same thing. And this was to appear, you know, this is a pattern that was happening for the next hour. And I just thought this was mighty strange behavior. And he did show me the beer cans that he had had. And he had drank almost a case of beer and he had finished off a half gallon of bourbon. Now, most people, that would make you very drunk, but it didn't him. He had quite a capacity. I was to find myself later on in that evening after dinner to find myself backed in the corner and he had his fists raised. And at that time he weighed 260. He looked taller. He looked about the size of, no offense, Ron, but he looked about the size of you. <laughs> he looked big. And he had his, his hands raised and I thought, oh God, here it comes now. And there were a few accusing words and then he backed off. And I knew that if he hadn't backed off, I might have to take one beating. But I wasn't going to take another one. I was going to leave. And he must have seen something in my eyes that made him back off. I don't know how I looked. I know how I felt. I, I felt terrified. And he backed off and he went to the phone and called AA. And I thought, my God, he's got a problem, but it's not that bad. <laughs> He's not that bad. I mean, he's not a low-down drunk. You know, I pictured drunks. I don't know where I got this picture from. I pictured them all wearing navy blue woolen heavy coats, even in the summertime. They had a growth, you know, growth of whiskers, and I, I pictured them always sitting on sidewalks, dirty sidewalks. I pictured them with stub cigars uh, that they had picked up in a gutter. Uh, also pictured them with a wine bottle either in their pocket or in their hand and they were sitting on the sidewalk and just bemoaning their fate in life. And that's, that was my picture of an alcoholic and so I knew he wasn't that. Nevertheless, he called them and um, they said, if you're really serious about this wanting to quit drinking, come and talk to us in the morning. And he'd asked them to come over, they wouldn't come. And he paced around a bit, and um, I heard him call them again. And I was busy putting the kids to bed and folding some clothes, and he continually tried to pick a fight, and I wouldn't fight with him. That's the only thing I did right prior to Al-Anon. I was quite the enabler. I was to find out after I got into the program. I bought his booze for him. And the reason I bought his booze for him is because I didn't want him sitting on a bar stool where some 
cute young thing that gets better looking at closing time is. <laughs> and so I would buy his case of beer every Saturday and bourbon and whatever else he wanted. That was just part of the grocery list. I had been trained well with my first marriage. And uh, I heard him again going to the phone and finally, in desperation, I heard him ask for them to come and, he, and they did come to talk. Two men came. And they said, John, I don't believe that you've had this much to drink. Because he wasn't staggering and his words weren't slurred. But they said, nevertheless, if you want to quit drinking, come see us in the morning before you have one. And they talked a little bit. And, the, and to me, they said, and if you have a problem with his drinking, there's a program called Al-Anon. Now, I didn't have a problem with his drinking if he had only chosen to stop or taper off or just ease up a little bit or been okay with me because he always treated me well, except that one night. He always treated me like I had wanted to be treated. He treated me, he was my prince on, in shining armor. He was the man I had always dreamed of. Before I, I yeah, before I um, <laughs> left my first marriage, I kept saying, God, send me somebody that will love me. Just send me somebody that will love me, just as I am, just someone. And I was to see, I looked up in the sky and I was to see just these eyes looking at me uh, with love, such love. And oh, if I could only feel that, you know, if I could only meet someone like that in person. And that was him. That was him. When I met him, that was him. Anyway, he was to go into AA and uh, attend a few of their meetings before we left Gillette. We were to move to Riverton and... Shortly after we got to Riverton, he was to train for another job in Michigan for a month. And uh, while he was gone, my father-in-law called me and he said, you need someone to talk to. And he says, I want you to call Elanon. Well, I thought I'd call Elanon before I went to see Dad. And I'd take, get that base covered. Well, he's so smart. He said, he called Elanon, he said, call her. She needs someone to talk to. And they were afraid to call me. They didn't know what they were getting into. But the gal called and, and shared her story with me. Her husband had, at that time had been sober for 20 years. You know, when we're told to call somebody, all we're told to do or asked to do is to share our story. We shouldn't have to be afraid. And if they can identify in part, we've done our job. And she did it well that day. She had told me her story. And I thought to myself, my God, I've never been through all that she's been through. Surely this, this can help me. If, you know, if I haven't been as bad as she, surely there's something there that will work for me. And I went. And I can't tell you it was a particularly good meeting because they weren't working the steps. They weren't reading them even. I can't imagine today not going to an Al-Anon meeting where they don't read the steps and the traditions we do in, the, in our group. But they weren't then. And I was to find Al-Anon by osmosis. I sat there and I was scared and I was and I just listened. And that's how it was for the first year. And we met in a church. And as I continued my reading in the Elanon One Day at a Time book, and as I attended open meetings and heard the AAs talk, and I have to tell you, I learned more from the AAs during that time than I did from the Elanon. I heard an honesty and I saw a light in their eyes. And I saw a light come into my husband's eyes, and it was beautiful. 
It was beautiful, and I thought, oh, I want that. And as I continued working the program and getting immersed into the steps, we would pass a sanctuary going up to the meeting room, and there was a red light in that sanctuary, and there was a glow in that room, and I thought, oh, I want that, I want that. And I didn't know how to get back. And I thought, you know, if God can forgive these alcoholics, if he can forgive everything that I've heard in open meetings, he surely can forgive me. And I was to take the first steps where I admitted I was powerless over alcohol because I didn't pour the drinks down his throat. I bought the booze, but I didn't pour it down him. And I didn't get him drunk, and I didn't cause the disease. I knew I was an enabler. I knew I had done some things wrong. So surely, if they can be forgiven, I could be too. And I found myself... Later on, we, we moved a lot. We moved every two years of our marriage at that time. And I was to find myself in Cody, Wyoming. And we were... Before we got to Cody, I had gotten to a point in my Al-Anon story that I had said, God, I really would like to grow. Could you give me something to grow with? And don't, don't pray that. Don't pray. <laughs> That's a very foolish prayer. <laughs> Reword it in some different way. Say, let me grow at, your, at the pace you want me to grow at, not at my own speed. Because then we were separated for seven months. And that was painful the most painful experience in our marriage. And I was to find myself crying as we talked on the phone every day. And I'd go up and see him on weekends, but it wasn't enough. We, you know, he was still my groom and I was his bride and, and weekend visits were just not enough. I can empathize with some of you who are in that situation. And I was to go up one night before I moved to Cody and I was to hear his boss say to him, you know, John, it looks like there's two years' worth of work right in this area, and you may as well have it. Well, I went home, determined my time, and um, quit my job, packed my clothes, and went up. And I had just, I put him above my job. I had just gotten a raise. I had just gotten my first paycheck of making, I was making man's wages. And it was a good paycheck, and I was, I was proud. I have to say I was proud of that. But when they said that there'd be two two years' work in Cody for John, I knew where I needed to be. And so I went to him. And it was good. And as I was there, and I checked into Elanon on the weekends because they had open meetings then, I already knew people. They were my friends. I could just... I, there was a built-in family there. And we were to go. Um, he had a vacation about that time. We were to go out west. And we met some people there. They had moved there from Gillette, and we had befriended them. And we went to visit them because we were on our way to see the ocean, on our way to see the coast. And I walked into her living room, and her eyes had lights in them. And she had been so negative. You know, she was a hard person to be around. She wasn't in Elanon. I met her through the oil field. My husband uh, and her husband worked together. And I said, Audrey, what happened to you? And she just pointed up. Now, she had the same background I'd had with her um, religion. And 
I said, well, where in the world do you go? Because I didn't think there was a way for me to get into an organized religion. And she told me, and she says, when you get back, you call those people. And that woman has been such a, she's not an Al-Anon, but she lives an Al-Anon program for the most part. And she was to, to tell me part of her story. She says, you know, sometimes it's been so rough for us out here. There, had, she says, there was one time, she says, I'll tell you about, that was, we didn't have any money. And she said, we had a baby, and the baby was just, you know, a few months old, and, and we didn't even have any food in the house for that baby. And she said, I had two dollars in my billfold. And she said, I knew, I knew it wasn't enough to buy baby food. So she went to church that night, it was in the middle of the week, and uh, the collection plate came around, she thought, you know, what could I do with two dollars? So she put the whole thing in. And that, that was a miracle, because she was willing to give everything she had, and no one was working at that particular time. And the next morning her husband got a call to go to work. Now this has happened. She gave up. She let go and let God. She was an example to me before I got here. And it was good. And I have had examples similar, um, not quite that profound, but similar. I can remember feeling very guilty because um, about two years ago, I'm getting ahead of myself, but this is a good time to tell this part. About two years ago, I was mad at God because um, we were out of work. And I found myself in our dining room and John had tried getting some work, but everything he he pursued didn't go, didn't turn out well. And I found myself in the dining room, and I can't remember if I was on my knees or bent over. I was just so furious, and I said, "I have had it with you," and I was just yelling at God and. Uh, John says, Lee, if you're going to act that way, I'm getting out of this room because you're going to get it. <laughs> he says, you're going to get the lightning bolt. And he meant it. <laughs> he said, and I'm not going to be standing near you when you do. <laughs> and I was shouting. I said, oh, I have had it with you. I said, how come you haven't given us a job? How come you, ha what are you doing to us? Anyway? I said, okay, take everything. I have had it. You just take everything. Take this house. Take everything. I don't care anymore. I just don't care. Two weeks later, he had a job. And it was a good job. And it was to last for a few weeks. And it tied us over for months. I gave up. I didn't know I was giving up. And when I did a fifth step with him, the minister that I confess with, and I have used him several times, this particular one, he's, I said, you know, one day I'm going to have to pay for that. And he said, no, you won't. <laughs> I said, yes, I will. I said, you just don't check your fist in God's face and not pay for it. And he says, it's already been paid for. I said, oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> and um, he said, all you were saying was, God, you're sovereign, and you can fix this. And how come you're not doing it? I said, oh, I didn't know I was saying that. I thought I was really mad at him. <laughs>
worked in my life after we had been in on that visit to Washington and I had seen Audrey and had heard her stories you know I heard God calling me back I was sitting in our living room in our in our house and I heard God saying to me Lee you know where you belong Lee you know where you belong every Sunday morning until the voice got so loud in my head I couldn't stand it and I ran out of the house and I went to the church that she had told me to call and I had called him in the meantime and done the footwork and I knew where to go and it was good it was good and it was a small group of people not any bigger than a small AA or Al-Anon meeting and it was good I was to grow along that way and one day I was going out of the house to go to where I worshipped at that time and something said you better turn around and kiss your husband goodbye I always did that I don't know why I didn't that day and I turned around and kissed him goodbye and here he was getting his Sunday clothes on now the only time he'd put his Sunday clothes on was when we were out dancing and I knew he wasn't going dancing so, <laughs> so he went with me and you know he's been going ever since and it's been good because our family was able to get back into a way that ordinary families often live some of the other miracles in my life was well the children got to see a new way of life and that was good and you know I've always been kind of shy about mentioning scriptures around AA and L anon because I don't want you guys to think I'm kooks or on a, a crusade or whatever I just don't want you thinking that I just See, I mean, I'm still into people-pleasing. You know, I've been in here 10... I, I should have said that starting out. I've been in here 10 and a half years. And the reason I should have said that earlier is because if I've... If you've only been in a few months and you say, my God, you know, or if you've been in 22 years and say, oh, she's really sick, you know, I want you to, to compare. If you're going to compare growth, compare the years. I've been here ten and a half years. If you've only been here a couple of months, you know you probably won't have experienced some of these things. So don't com don't compare two young two months to ten years. But some of the things that he's done for me, I'm not ashamed anymore to to open the Bible. I'm not ashamed to bend my knee. I've gotten a lot of help that way. I've gotten sanity back into my insides where where I've always wanted it it's a good way to live uh, I'm going to tell you about the motorcycle because we need to lighten up here this is too heavy my nose is red and running and my eyes are red I feel a mess uh, I was to um, this is hearsay I'm going to tell you some of the hearsay here John tells me I said to him one morning <laughs> are you going to get your motorcycle today I don't recall saying that, but El, you know, Elanons have blackouts too. I want you to know that. We can have blackouts, dark, cold, sober. I don't remember saying that, but I'm sure I did because he's not known to lie. And, <laughs> and um, later on that day, he called me up and he said, Well, we have got it. I said, Got what? He says, The motorcycle. I said, Oh. How much does it weigh? What's the matter with you? 
I said, how much does it weigh? I mean, the insurance lady is going to want to know. And he tells me, I said, what kind of, what make is it? And I was putting ice cubes across the telephone line. And he had purchased this in Powell, I believe. And that was about a, a half an hour's ride. I thought, boy, when he gets home, is he going to get it? I, you know, I, oh, how dare he do this without, you know, you know I've forgotten that morning what he had, uh, what I had said. Are you going to get your bike this day? Well, we we handled the things that I needed to know for the insurance lady. I hung up the phone, and I'm sure he didn't want to come home to this pleasant creature he had just talked to on the phone. I'm sure that must have been a torturous trip. And I had my speech pretty well planned out. And I was finishing something up in the kitchen. I don't know if I was finishing cooking or washing dishes or doing something, and all of a sudden I heard, Lee! And I turned around. I knew I was alone in that kitchen, I thought. And I said, y yes. <laughs> and I heard this voice. It said, haven't I taken pretty good care of you? And I said, yes, yes. And I was slammed against the cupboard doors because I was frightened. He said, haven't I taken pretty good care of you through John? And I said, yes. And he said, well, what does it matter if he has a little toy to play with then? Oh, I knew whose voice that was. That was God. And he was hitting me over the head with a two-by-four. It was just exactly what I needed to hear. And all the anger was immediately washed away. I finished up what I was doing in the kitchen. I went downstairs and was watching TV. Pretty soon John comes in, he opens the door and he, I was downstairs and he throws his cap downstairs. <laughs> I would have too. <laughs> and I said, hi honey, did you have a good ride? He comes downstairs and he says, what in the world happened to you? <laughs> and I just pointed up. He said, oh, it's so great to have friends in high power. <laughs> I love that because, you know, God has a sense of humor and God has a way of getting my attention. And I was to meet an Al-Anon woman who is no longer in our group. She has transferred to another state. And she says, you know, she says, I believe sometimes that you hear God's voice because you're a real hardhead. And it's like he's saying, hey, you down there. <laughs> and that's what he does to me. He yells, hey, you. And he's done that several times to me recently. The latest thing, prior to Rich calling, uh, the latest thing he did this past year was take three people and put them in their proper place in my life. We have daily readings in the morning. John reads and I usually put on my face or finish making breakfast. And after he got through with the the reading, he reads out of the big book and out of the Bible and out of our one day at a time and out of the, as Bill sees it. And we have a good, good situation doing that every morning. It's a good way to get us off to a good start. We're trying to do what they tell us to do, folks, and it works if you try it. And one morning he had finished his reading and I was to feel a tap on my shoulder. Now, I don't care if you believe this or not. 
I'm not telling you a pet theory, I'm telling you what happened to me. I was to feel a tap on my shoulder and I heard him say to me, and you won't be staying late at the meeting tonight and listening to everything she has to say after the meeting. I knew where the voice had come from. I had heard that voice before about the motorcycle. And somewhere in the scripture it says, My sheep know my voice. I don't mind being called a sheep. I'd rather be called a sheep than a turkey, I'll tell you any day. <laughs> So after the meeting, I left right away. Now who God was talking about to me was my sponsor. I had wanted her friendship so bad that I was willing to listen to anything she had to say to me. And I was to find out that she wasn't the sponsor that I would have chosen if I had prayed and asked for help. She was not. I chose that one on my own, and if you have to choose a sponsor, if you don't have one yet, just say, God, show me who you want me to have for a sponsor, and he will. I guarantee you, he will. So I was to leave that meeting right after, as soon as it ended, I left, and she was to take this as rejection, because I had prayed, God, show me what I'm to do now. I don't know what, I'm lost. What am I to do now? And he showed me. I had a crisis that weekend. I don't remember what the crisis was. I just remember having it. I remember needing to reach out because I have learned to do this. That's what you have taught me to do. I learned to reach out and I, out of habit, called my old sponsor and she wasn't home. God saw to that. I'm convinced today. And I was to call someone else in the program because I asked him who to call and he said, why don't you call this? You know, the name just came. And I dialed her number and she was home. And I don't remember the crisis, but I remember the feedback that she gave me and it did not come from her, I guarantee you. She's not that smart. She's not. She's been in the program a few years less than I have too and I've seen her grow. I've seen her come up and that the words that came out of her mouth came directly from a guy she's tuned into. And so I was to share at a meeting, you know, those few weeks following, I said, well, my sponsor told me, well, my sponsor told me. And this first woman knew that those words hadn't come out of her mouth. And I, she took it as rejection, I guess. I don't know. But our, our relationship went down the toilet. And I'm, I'm sad to see that happen, but it does happen sometimes in this group. God works in mysterious ways. Another way he worked this past year in my life was um, with my sister. Uh, she was living a sordid life, and she had... had um, pardon me? She was living a sordid life and I had written to her and she had confided a secret in me and I kept her secret. She lives in Wyoming, or she lives in Colorado. I live in Wyoming. I didn't tell anybody. Who would I tell? I mean, who would care? And um, she forgot. She told my brother and he told my sister and he told my brother. And, uh, she writes at me and she says, thanks a lot for not keeping my secret. Well, she'd forgotten which sister she had told and which brother and she hasn't written to me for a year and that hurt that hurt so bad 
and I was falsely accused. Anyway, God must have a reason for doing this. I'm anxious to see how he's going to work this out. I had only told her one thing that, that maybe she took the wrong way. I said, you know, I said, the thing that you're doing now, and she was, um, she was in a relationship she shouldn't have been in. I said, the thing that you're doing now, and you don't know her, you'll never meet her, so I feel I can share this. The thing you're doing now, I said, is like walking downtown nude and thinking no one's going to notice. <laughs> I said, you know, it's gonna, somebody's going to notice one day. Well, anyway, she hasn't written to me for a year, and that, that hurt. That's very painful. And the third thing that he did that was painful this year was I always had my husband on a pedestal. He was my knight in shining armor. And if he'd fall off, I'd, pick, I'd dust him off pick him up and put him right back on that pedestal. And I did, I had done that several times. And you know, God doesn't want us to put people on pedestals. He wants to be on the pedestal in our life. I was putting unexpectations, unrealistic expectations on a human being. And those expectations should only have been put on God. So I don't have John on a pedestal today. I'm not going to tell you what he said or what he wanted to do. It's none of your business. It's our business. <laughs> and I today have him labeled as my husband. I love him, but he's an ordinary human being. And I don't expect miracles out of him. And I no longer have that pedestal regarding him. After I was immersed in this program uh, for a few years, I was, I was getting a nagging feeling that maybe I should be doing something in the line of service work outside of the program, and I was given the idea to go up to the nursing home. I love old people. I just love old people. And I would go up and visit some of these people and talk to them, and I went to the nurse's station first off, and I said, who doesn't get visitors? Who doesn't have family? And she told me some, and I, I went to see them. And we established a relationship, and it was good. And I got more out of it than they did, I guarantee you. I got a lot more out of it. My, my insides were so full when I would leave on Sundays after an hour or two or three that I couldn't hold it all. It was just such a neat feeling. And one by one, they'd die. And oh, it was, it was painful to see some of them go. And one summer, I got so busy with my garden and excuses and everything that I didn't go up. And you shouldn't ought to do that either. You know, if he gives you something to do, do it. Otherwise, you pay the consequences. And uh, this one summer, I wasn't getting up there like I should. And um, it became known to me that the parsonage needed painting. And I thought, well, I'd be a good job for some of the men. And um, all of a sudden, I was to hear, you can't do the easy things I would give you to do, like the nursing home. Go paint the parsonage. Oh, God. Please, not me and me. It took me two weeks to paint the inside and out. Eight hours a day and longer. I got precious little help. Um, the minister was to paint one bathroom and one bedroom, and I did the rest. Oh, there was somebody else that came to paint a door, and someone else came to paint one side of the trim, one side of the house, and I did the rest 
not because I'm wonderful. I had to do that because I was being chastised. You can't do the easy things I would give you to do. Go paint the parsonage. I'll tell you this day when I have a free moment on Sundays, when I'm not out speaking somewhere as I have been this year a lot, I'm up in the nursing home. And as it got too painful for me to see so many of them die, I go up there and sit in their little living room and I sing and play guitar to them. Not because I'm a wonderful person, not because I'm a wonderful singer, because I'm not. Not because I play the guitar wonderful. It's an outlook that, I, that was given to me. And I had asked, I was having even a problem with that. I couldn't even get a strumming pattern. I said, God, if you give me a strumming pattern, I'll do something with this for you. I had the strumming pattern within the week, believe me. <laughs> And so I feel I have to share it, and I take it up and share it, and they love it, and I leave with more than they have ever gotten, the miracles that he has done for me. Through the growth of this program and through doing what you have told me to do, working the steps, allowing yourself the program of recovery, unity, and service, I was to become GR, DR, um, and one, one year I was elected delegate. I didn't ask to be elected. I just allowed my name to stand. And I gave up on that one too. I let go and let God because someone had told me, take your name off that list. I don't, she said to me, she says, you have a good spiritual program. I don't, I don't want you to go to New York and let them ruin it for you. <laughs> you would know the lady if I mentioned her name that said that to me. I was devastated. It felt like to me like she had taken a bucket of cold water and just splashed in my face and I was mad. And I tossed and turned that night till three in the morning. I said, God, I don't know what you want me to do. I'm just willing to do what you want me to do. And the next day they went around to all the DRs and they said, are you willing to stand? And, and uh, they'd say yes or no. And when it came to me, they said, are you willing to stand? And I looked at this woman and I said, yes, I am. And I just said, God, whatever you want. I don't care. You know, I just want to be willing and I want you to know that. And I got selection. Now, I didn't get it because I'm so wonderful. And because I know so much. Because I don't. I sometimes think that some of these newcomers that come in with a fresh approach are so much more knowledgeable than I am. But he wanted me to learn something, and I was to learn that I was humility. And it has been a trip, I'll tell you. It's, and it's been a fast one. And sometimes he gives me things I don't want to do, and they're painful. The first year I was to go to New York, my brother lay dying. He was 39 years old, and he, he lay dying of a cancerous brain tumor. And while I wanted to go and serve, because I had been asked to, I also wanted to be with him if he needed me or if he was going to die and and I wanted to be there at his funeral. And I had become close with my brother. I had left home when he was about 14. And so we grew apart throughout the years, but when the family knew that he had this tumor, we all rallied to him and we all became close. And um, I would see him every opportunity I got and I saw him often that last year. And I knew he was dying, and he had lived a life that would not win him any rewards with anyone. Certainly he would not reap the good life. I believe he was an alcoholic, because booze was a part of his everyday life. 
And as my brother shared some of the things that he had done, you guys, you don't even hold a candle to some of the things he's done. I knew where he, he needed to be. But he was laying dying on his hospital bed in his living room. And I'd call him on the phone and I'd say, Ronnie, how are you with God? And we'd talk a little. And he'd say, um, that's enough. I don't want to talk anymore about that. And so I'd quit. And we'd talk about other things and priests would hang up. And one particular week he had had a, a rough, rough week. They had even brought chemotherapy into his home. His wife has done, had done, done everything to keep him alive. She, because of her, many times he would have succumbed if she hadn't just nagged the doctors for more therapy. This one particular week he was having a really rough time and he had gone in and out of comas. And I wanted him to know where I had gotten in touch with God. I wanted him to feel what I had felt and I wanted him to know about this. And I couldn't reach him. And one particular day I was given um, the thought to call him. And I got busy and didn't get around to it. And I thought about it two or three days later and um, I said, oh, God, I'm sorry, I forgot to call him. Just keep him alive till I can get to him. And he did. And I called him, and th he was always accompanied with, by someone in that room. His brother-in-law had quit a job in South Dakota just to nurse him while his wife was uh, doing her bookkeeping job away from the home. And he was always with somebody. And that morning, he wasn't. That morning, he was alone. I said, Ronnie, I just, I have such a need to call you today. I just can't get you off my mind. How are you doing? He said, oh, it's pretty rough, sis. I said, Ronnie, how are you with God today? And he said, well, not too good. And he seemed willing to talk. I could feel a willingness for him to talk. And I said, want to talk about it? Do you want to pray? He said, um, well, yeah, but you're going to have to do it. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm he was willing. He became willing. He knew he was ebbing out. And we prayed a prayer similar to what you have in your big book, the third step prayer. It wasn't the exact same words, but it was the same general idea something what some of the religious people would call the sinner's prayer. And after we got through praying that, I felt it was like God was just raining on me. Only it was a dry rain and it filled my insides up so much with such joy. I couldn't contain it. And we said goodbye. And I was at peace with him and I knew he was at peace. It was beautiful. I just sat there and bathed in this feeling for about 20 minutes. This has never happened to me before. I became willing, too, to reach out to him in, in that way. And you know, that's kind of tough sometimes for people. It's hard to, sometimes to talk about God. You don't want to be made to feel like a fanatic. You don't want to be made to feel like a fool. 
but you do what you're asked to do. I bathed in that feeling for about 20 minutes and I was at peace that he was going to be okay, not physically, but certainly spiritually. I was to find myself being able to go to New York. He was still alive. I went and attended those meetings for a week. Our conference was scheduled within the next two weeks. I was able to go to the conference in Jackson that year to give my report. That day, we got home. That Sunday, we got home. And there was the call. My husband, I wish you were here. We have a... Oh, telephone answer was in the... John got the message that he had gone and um, when he gave it to me he just held me and just hugged me and I thought he's going to tell me something I don't think it's going to be good <laughs> and he said he's gone he's gone and he says and they want you and they need you to make some decisions and I went out to the, to the garage to get another suitcase and I just looked up and I said, Oh, Ronnie, you were such a gentleman. You waited until I got to go to New York and you waited until I gave my report and you're just such a gentleman. And I thought to myself, it wasn't Ronnie that was a gentleman, it was God. And I was just so grateful that when we let go and let him work, he just, he just does it so neat. And I told you that um, we, we went to that funeral. And you know, it wasn't so sad. I sang at that funeral. You know, you don't sing at a relative's funeral. You're busy crying. And you're busy mourning. But I knew where Ronnie was. And I knew he was okay. And that funeral, and afterwards they get together with uh, a food service, it was a celebration. I mean, it was like a family reunion. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was okay. He was out of pain. You know, it, was, it was where he needed to be. He needed to be released. John was to get a job a couple days later. A couple weeks later, I should say. And we were to find ourselves in Roosevelt, Utah. And um, it was a good job. It was a 30-day job. And while we were there, a strange thing happened. I don't care if you believe this or not. It happened. And I'm going to tell you about it. We were there about two weeks. And in the middle of the night, I heard, It's Ronnie! And I was immediately awakened. And at the foot of my bed, there stood my brother. I didn't see him. I felt him. And you know how the thing is in um, Star Trek where they say, Beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> That's as near like what I can describe to you is how it was. There he was. And he didn't say a word. And I didn't say a word. 
I just laid in bed. I looked over at John. John was sound asleep. And it was the same feeling I had had before when he and I prayed together. And I just basked in that feeling. God allowed me to know that he was okay, that he was being taken care of. And after about a half an hour, this left. And I accepted it, and I told John about the next morning, he looked. <laughs> he said, Lee, I'm having an awful hard time with this. <laughs> and the next night, in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning, it's Friday! <laughs> I thought, God, how can I be so blessed? I have an open mind. Now, you don't have to jump to conclusions. I don't have such an open mind that everything sails right through. <laughs> but I do have an open mind. And he was again at the foot of my bed. He said to me, Thank you. Everything is just fine with me. Thank you. And I knew it was. And this happened for about a half an hour. I didn't see anything. It was like I described before. It was wonderful. I know very well that Ronnie is in heaven waiting for us, waiting to see the rest of us one day if we're so lucky to make it. And I believe we will if we do everything we're told to in this program. I don't know that my husband has accepted this today. I don't know that any of you have received this and heard this. I don't care. <laughs> I'm sharing my experiences, strengths, and hopes. And this happened to me as sure as I am standing here today. I know that when you die, it's just your body and that your spirit lives on. And I'm grateful for that. This last year when I went to New York, I sent up an SOS prayer and I said, God, I don't know what you have for me to learn this year. Well, I'm here. I said, but I, I would ask one small request. I said, would you please put somebody on the plane next to me that I can feel comfortable with? And he did. I was to leave Billings. I had gotten 45 minutes sleep the night before. I, John was already there doing his work, and uh, he was to come back to a house, and I wanted him to come back to a sparkling, clean, perfect house. You know how we are sometimes. We overreact. We want everything perfect for our mates. And I wanted everything done, so I got 45 minutes sleep the night before I was to leave, and I was tired. And I got into the airport, and... Uh, I was to get a window seat so I wouldn't get nauseated and I just, just chose to sleep rather than look out the window and the one guy said, do you mind if I take this seat? I really would like to see the scenery. I'm going back to Oklahoma and I said, sure, I'm going to sleep anyway. Well, about a half an hour before we were to land, I was to find out that he was in the oil business. He was a young man in his 20s and uh, we got to talking about the oil business and I compared some of the things that I knew about and shared what, what my husband did and uh, he, had a, he had a look about him that was um, ordinary and yet there was something there, you know what I mean? Like we see with each other as we grow spiritually and he made some remark about uh, war in the Middle East and I said, oh, don't you think we're just in the last days? And he said, oh my, I didn't know you believed that way too and we talked incessantly for the next half hour. He says, I wish I would have known that you had these beliefs. We could have talked for these, these, this whole hour, you know, 
more than an hour that we were together on the plane. And as I pulled my baggage out into the into the airport, he just wanted to keep talking, and so did I. And and we couldn't. He had to go his way, and he and I had to go mine. And something came to me. It's okay. You'll see him one day. <laughs> Probably not in planet Earth, but you'll see him one day. You know, up there. We'll talk again. You kind of get that assurance as as you follow these steps and work this program. You'll see one another one day, even not on this earth. And I was to um, transfer from Denver to another plane, and God still remembered the prayer, I guess. And I was to sit next to a little man. Ordinary clothes, didn't look, and he didn't look like a spiritual giant to me. And I slept for a little bit, and I can't remember how the conversation started, but I made some remark, and he said, Oh, yes, everything begins and ends at the cross. <laughs> I looked at him, and he said, I'm a priest. <laughs> and he was had plain clothes on, he was telling me what his function was and where he was going, and the meeting they were having close to where we were, and he said, If you get a chance, come over. And we talked, and we had a good talk. And on the way home, I got to sit next to our own Audrey from Rock Springs, and we shared many things. And you know, God will give that to you as you allow yourself to become willing. And I believe today that he is just as alive and well and answering prayers as he did when the good book was written about him. And I believe that we can tap into that any time. All we have to do is become willing, do what we're told, work those steps, Go to meetings, do what you're told, work those steps, pass it on as you're told to pass it on, keep an open mind, and just keep coming back. Thank you very much for listening today. I have enjoyed this. I hope I haven't set you back. I hope I haven't carried the mess instead of, I hope I have carried the message instead of the mess. <laughs> I'm hoping that you'll continue to love me even after I go sit down. Thank you very much. <laughs>